Stanley Kubrick first read Anthony Burgess's dystopian novel A Clockwork Orange when he was putting the finishing touches on Dr. Strangelove back in 1963. His co-writer on that project, Terry Southern, had handed it to him with great enthusiasm, but when Kubrick read it, he was baffled. He could make neither head nor tail of the bizarre phonology Burgess had invented to tell the story. Burgess was a polyglot, and with his command of several languages, he had fashioned a unique vernacular he called Nadzat, a mixture of Cockney rhyming slang, associative words, and anglicised Russian and Gypsy, and then put them in the mouth of his lead character Alex. And with Alex as our narrator, we have no translation for Nadzat other than our own intuition. That's actor Tom Hollander reading from the audiobook. Burgess's Argot was a literary nod to tropes in two of the 20th century's greatest novels, the Newspeak in George Orwell's 1984 and the etymological wordplay that flowed through James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Published in 1962, Burgess had set A Clockwork Orange in an unspecified point in the future, but he had written it in reaction to a shocking event in the past. With the outbreak of the Second World War, millions of British men and women were mobilised to help with the campaign. Amongst them, a Welsh woman, Luella Isherwood. Serving as a nurse, Luella met the then John Anthony Burgess Wilson, who had enlisted in the Medical Corps. No sooner had they become engaged than Burgess was charged with desertion for overstaying his leave to visit his fiancée. Nevertheless, they married in Bournemouth on January 22, 1942, set up home in London, and Luella soon became pregnant. But shortly thereafter, she was attacked and gang-raped by four American soldiers who had abandoned their unit. Luella suffered a miscarriage and her injuries resulted in lifelong dysmenorrhea. Some two decades later, Burgess addressed the horror by way of a cathartic act of charity, writing a book that addressed the senseless young men who inflict violence on defenceless women. Here is Kubrick in 1972, explaining what ultimately drew him to the novel. Alex. No, I wouldn't say he's positive. I would just say that there's this strange uh, psychological identification with him. It's probably what attracted me to the book, is this strange uh, duality of uh, a character who is plainly evil, and yet um, because of him operating on this uh, unconscious level, uh, makes you aware of things of your own personality which you then identify with him. Coming off the enormously successful but also financially costly, not to mention creatively exhausting 2001, Kubrick was looking for a change in gear. A film he could make cheaply, quickly and unlike a space odyssey, one with a strong narrative spine. Revisiting A Clockwork Orange he found that it fitted all those requirements. Early on Kubrick had entertained the idea of casting the Rolling Stones as the Droogs, with Mick Jagger taking the lead as Alex. Outlandish as it may sound now, back in the late 1960s, it might have made a fair bit of sense. The band had the anti-establishment credentials, so it appeared that they were a match for the material of Burgess's novel. But the reality was very different. With the Beatles breaking up, the Rolling Stones were intent on seizing the opportunity to become the biggest unrivaled rock and roll band in the world 
a title to which they'd already laid claim on their 1969 American tour. Still, it would be interesting to know what music the Rolling Stones might have come up with, given that they had already addressed such issues as social unrest with Street Fighting Man, the war in Vietnam with Gimme Shelter, and the highly disturbing Midnight Rambler about the rape-murder spree committed by Albert DeSalvo, otherwise known as the Boston Strangler. Did you hear about the Which brings me to Anthony Burgess and his relationship with music. He called himself a graphomane, from the French meaning compulsive writer. When he was not composing novels, poems, plays and critical essays, Burgess was composing music. As early as 12, he announced his intention was to be a composer, having heard, to use his own words, the inexpressible spiritual realities of Claude Debussy's Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. It was Burgess's preferred wish that people remember him as a composer who happened to write novels, as opposed to an author who also spent time at the piano. In fact, with the exception of Debussy and the Rolling Stones, the music that you've been hearing was composed entirely by Burgess. Music, he said, is a purer art because it has no direct relationship to human events. It is totally outside the field of moral judgment. That's why I prize it. Which is perhaps why Burgess gave Alex a liking for Ludwig van Beethoven. The way Burgess created him, Alex sees no moral contradiction between the violence he inflicts upon people and his choice in music. And why should there be? Is an electric guitar evil while an oboe virtuous. Back when Burgess wrote the novel, perceived wisdom held that no one prone to antisocial behaviour and from a working class, uneducated background could possibly have the patience to listen to, let alone the sensibility to appreciate, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. It is sometimes claimed that with 2001, Kubrick became the first director to play classical music over images that were utterly at odds with what the audience heard. This is not true. There are several examples of European film directors who subverted classical music years before Kubrick did. In 1961, Pier Paolo Pasolini made Acatone, in which he juxtaposed Johann Sebastian Bach's sacred choral work St. Matthew's Passion against images of Vittorio Cataldi fighting against his fellow criminals.
Three years later, Pasolini went the other way by using contemporary blues artist Odetta and her version of this spiritual classic in the Gospel according to St. Matthew. do well to remember how, in 1955, Alexander McKendrick had used the minuetto from Luigi Boccherini's String Quintet in E Major as the counterpoint to the homicidal maniacs in The Lady Killers. Are you supposed to make noises with these things? What kind of noises? Oh, she, not noises, one run. Music. I said, what does she mean, you... And that is not to mention how, in Fritz Lang's M, Compulsive child murderer Hans Beckert whistles Grieg's Hall of the Mountain King. Now, some might cite D.W. Griffith's use of the Ride of the Valkyrie in The Birth of a Nation. But there was nothing ironic in his use of Wagner's opera. Griffith was using it only to reinforce something he saw as morally justified. However, the director who really wrought asunder associations between classical music and the sublime was Jean-Luc Godard. In 1967, with Weekend, he had a bourgeois couple escape the city for a relaxing break, only to find themselves waylaid in a rural farmyard. Inexplicably, a man sits at a grand piano and not only performs Mozart's 18th Piano Sonata, but also delivers a thesis on the cultural significance and corruption of classical music. But undoubtedly, A Clockwork Orange's juxtaposition was but one reason why audiences and critics found the film so alarming. Beethoven's music represented cultural refinement, order and civility. Doesn't great art intrinsically lift the human spirit and reflect our highest moral aspirations? Well, in 1942, Ode to Joy was performed at a concert celebrating Adolf Hitler's 53rd birthday, at his request. In the documentary The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek lists the numerous tyrants and their totalitarian followers who have co-opted the Ode to Joy. Stalin, Chairman Mao, and in Peru, the Shining Path militant organisation. In fact, Beethoven himself dedicated his third symphony, the Eroica, to none other than Napoleon Bonaparte. So why were critics and audiences so shocked? The very same culture that gave us Mozart, Bach and Beethoven also conjured up the Holocaust. And the same culture that wrote the Bill of Rights also sanctioned slavery and segregation. 
A Clockwork Orange is an awfully difficult film to look at and listen to. I have already mentioned the music, but I have not yet addressed the way some of the pieces were reconditioned by Wendy Carlos. Carlos was one of the developers of the Moog synthesizer, and her 1968 album Switched On Bach was one of the highest selling classical albums of the era. It earned her three Grammys and bought the synthesizer's innovative potential to Kubrick's attention. Carlos's renderings were perfectly in tune with what Kubrick wanted for his soundscape. The juxtaposition between the classical and the modern, traditional instruments and futuristic electronic, sacred and profane, in a word, disorientating. And we need listen no further than the first notes that play under the opening credits. Henry Purcell's The Funeral March of Queen Mary ordinarily sounds like this. The electronic manipulation of Beethoven's Ninth unsettles in a most unexpected way. And then there is the way Kubrick and his cinematographer John Alcott framed and lit the events. Bare white lighting frequently flares the lens and leaves the interiors with very little shadow and results in a sense of being visually assaulted. Secondly, the extreme camera angles, either low on the ground looking up, or the hectic handheld shots, pull you to extreme points on the visual spectrum. And finally, the way the wide-angle lenses stretch the imagery, distorting it to a point of near nausea, only adds to the feeling of having your eyes attacked. <laughs> The Ludovico technique. If there is one thing that makes a clockwork orange relevant to today, it is that sequence. At the time, the equivalent of conversion therapy would have been limited to political indoctrination, or, as it was called in the wake of World War II, re-education. However, within four years of Kubrick's film being released, a disastrous and genocidal conversion therapy was unleashed upon an entire nation. It resulted in the murder under the rule of Pol Pot, of nearly three million Cambodians, none of whom the tyrant considered to have been converted, were worth converting, or, having been converted, were of any benefit to his power. Today, conversion therapy is not so much political or ideological as, well, there are some religious leaders 
claiming that sexuality can be redirected. In other words, pray away the gay.